So a woman is in a hot air balloon and she's lost. And she leans over her basket and she sees a man down below. So she calls out to him and she says, Excuse me, I've promised a friend that I would meet them, but I don't know where I am. And so he calls back up to her and he says, You are at 31 degrees, 14.57 minutes north latitude, and 100 degrees, 49.09 minutes west uh, longitude. And she says, You must be a politician. He goes, yes, I am, by the way. How did you know? Because while everything you told me is technically correct, it doesn't help me at all. And I'm still lost. Frankly, you've been no help. And he looks up and says, you must be a politician. Yes, I am. How did you know? Well, you got to where you are by rising on hot air. You've made promises that you can't keep. And uh, you're expecting me to solve your problems. You're exactly in the same position you were before you talked to me, but now somehow it's my fault. <laughs> it is fun and easy to make fun of politicians, but politics and government are an important, God-instituted part of making the world a better place. We need authority structures. We need government. In fact, it's even a role that I believe Christians can take part in. That's the step right there. All right. It is a role that I believe even Christians can take a part in. So we're going to take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 2. And we are going to look at power, at politics, at personal vendettas, and the role of the Christian. <laughs> When you put it that way, you'll wonder, what role could a Christian play in any of that? Well, we'll find out. 2 Samuel chapter 2. And before we look there, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, You are the King of all the earth. You rule over all. You have all authority. And we submit to You. And You have also established other authorities on this earth that we are to honor and to submit to. And in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, uh, Father, we don't always do that well and we don't always respond to it well. But Father, I pray this morning as we look at your word that you would give us some takeaways, that you would help us to, to have the right beliefs, the right attitudes, and to take the right actions about government, about leadership. And so we pray that you would bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul is dead. The king of Israel is dead. And you would think that the next king of Israel, the one appointed by God, would just step right in and start where he left off. And that is not what we see in 2 Samuel. We see actually a seven-year-long process, a messy one, not a smooth one, a transition to this new king. And I think what, we, what we'll see as we look at this story of politics and power and personal vendettas, we're going to come away with four takeaways, four takeaways for today's Christian, specifically about politics and the role we can play in it. So before we can take a look at the story, I think we need to lay out some geography and some names. Politics tends to be about geography. Politics is really dramatic because it's about people. 
So let's take a look real quick at the people and the places that we're going to uh, read about so that we can kind of understand it. Here are, the, this is the land of Israel, the promised land, used to belong to the Canaanites, and now the 12 tribes of Israel have come in. That thick black line is kind of a division between the north and the south. There are 10 tribes to the north, two to the south. The upper one has, goes by many names, that upper kingdom. Just like our country, you can call our country America. You can call it the United States. Sometimes you can even call it by a city. You can say something like, Washington, D.C. made a law, and it's really about us. We might say something about New York City, and it's really about our wealth or our business or something. So this northern kingdom called Israel is sometimes called Ephraim because the tribe of Ephraim in purple up there is, it was a very strong tribe. I want to pay attention to, to a small orange tribe, Benjamin, right there on the northern part of that line. Just above that line is an orange tribe, an orange tribe, Benjamin. That is the tribe that Saul came from. Okay, that's going to be important for a little, one of our details in today's story. And so that's the northern uh, kingdom. And it has a king and it has a general over the army. The king of the northern kingdom is Ishbosheth. Not my fault, I didn't name him. Okay, Ishbosheth. And he's got a general, a commander of the army, whose name is Abner. Okay? So we need to know those names. David has been crowned king in Hebron, a small town in Judah. Right there, almost right in the middle is Hebron. David is the king, and his general is actually his nephew. His nephew Joab is the general over his army. Okay, so you got it? You got kind of the geography and the names. Okay, so now let's take a look at our story. 2 Samuel chapter 2, let's start in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, that's the northern part, the Asherites, that's the uh, northwest, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. So those are just kind of different regions. The commander of the army has made Ishbosheth the king of the northern land. Chapter 3, 2 Samuel chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So that's our geography, that's the setup. First thing we're going to meet, first character we meet today, is a wicked, a wicked politician. Now some of you might think that the phrase wicked politician comes from the Department of Redundancy Department. Uh, isn't that the same thing? Not necessarily, but today Abner is the wicked politician. And we're going to take a look a little bit about him. Chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner, the general of the army, was all about personal advancement. All about manipulating circumstances and gaining control. And this is not just about politicians. This is about the heart of every person. In our own little kingdoms, we want to have control. 
We want to say what goes and what doesn't go. We want to set up our own personal rules to meet our own personal needs, whether it's our home or at work. This is a reflection of the heart. He's positioning himself for political power. Lord Acton in 1887, a British lord, said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've probably heard that phrase before. There is something in the human heart that when it gets power, it rejects selflessness and instead takes on selfishness. Oh, you mean I can have my own way? Oh, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. And we know, we know, as the plebes, the, just the normal citizens, that those who are in authority have been given authority in order to serve their community. But it's hard for people in places of authority, political authority, military authority, it's hard for us to serve other people. Abner did not resist that internal fight. And, uh, and so he is taking, as general, command, really, of the entire nation. He even lords it over the king. Let's take a look at it. Verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth came up to Abner and he said, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. And he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends. And I have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. The author is very subtle. It doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us, whether, Ish, whether Abner really committed this crime or not, does he? It just says, that Ishbosheth, the king, came up to him and accused him of it, and he denied it. That's all we know. We don't know if he really did it. And that, to me, that just reminds me of life today. We hear these accusations of moral failure. We hear these accusations to our leaders of financial failure, and we get denials. And we're not close enough to the situation. We don't know them. Uh, we don't know what's going on. And so all we have to go on is accusations and denials. We have no idea who to trust in our leaders or what's going on. Isn't this real life right here? And this Abner, remember now, he's the so-called executive branch. He's the general. Ishbosheth is the king. But somehow Abner, has, as a military leader, has taken over political control. And he never really addresses the accusation. He merely is offended that you would even think, after all I've done for you, that I would do such a thing. Abner, the wicked politician. And he's blackmailing the king. He's threatening him. I haven't given you into the hand of David as if I've got control over you, king. And at any time, if I wanted to, I could just hand you over to David down there in Judah and he'd take over all your kingdom as if he had the power. And then he plays the religion card, the, the ever-present political religion card. Verse 9, 
Abner is still speaking. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to the farthest north to Beersheba to the farthest south. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now check this out. Abner the general knew that God had promised Israel to David. And for years, he's ignored that. For his own personal gain, he set up Ishbosheth as king and that because he was a puppet that he could control. And he, knowing what God said about David, that God was going to establish a unified kingdom under David, because God is going to bring salvation through that unified kingdom, knowing that, just kept it compartmentalized until he could use it to his advantage. Now he pulls it out, pulls out the God card, and he says, fine, Ishbosheth king, I'm going to now do what God said he was going to do, and I'm going to give the kingdom now back to David. And so Abner sent messengers, verse 12, to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. This is the definition of a lack of integrity. I'm using God when it's, advantage, when it's advantageous to me, but I'm going to put him aside when it's not. We all know people like this. We all know people who are unethical and immoral, and they don't want to know what God's rule says until maybe they can find a rule that helps them advance, and they'll throw that one out. It's two-faced. Abraham Lincoln, one of our presidents, when he was candidating and going around for president, he was challenged by saying that he was two-faced. And his response was, if I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> you know, Lincoln is known as Honest Abe, right? He was a person of integrity. He wasn't a two-faced person. It's hard to serve in government and not succumb to that power draw to try to take advantage of things. Any place of leadership that we have, we have to make sure that we are serving others. And so he reaches out and he makes a treaty with David. Verse 17, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, all the people in the northern kingdom, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Then why didn't he do anything? The population, the people, wanted, Israel wanted to be under David. But Abner was preventing it because that he would lose power. So now he comes down trying to look like he's the people's hero. And he says, oh, I hear, like he didn't know, that you wanted David to be your king. Well, I can help you with that. For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Now Abner also spoke to Benjamin. Remember now, that was the tribe 
that Saul came from. And politically speaking, it was very wise for him to, to make sure specifically for them. They were very proud. Their native son, Saul, the guy from their, from their land, he was the very first king of Israel. And now his son is king. And so to, to, to bring Benjamin over to David, that he wanted to make sure he, he paid attention to them. Abner was very astute politically. So he spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So he came to David with the gift of all of Israel. Two takeaways, two takeaways for the Christian as we look at wicked politicians. Two takeaways. The first one is a belief. And this is going to be the foundation for the other takeaways. So here's the first takeaway. That's the second take. There it is. God achieves his purposes through wicked people. We have to believe this in order for us to move forward in what God wants us to do and how God wants us to interact with authority and with leadership. God achieves his purposes through wicked people. Abner was a wicked man. But through Abner and all his conniving and all his political maneuvering, God was uniting Israel under one head. God wanted Israel to be united because that's going to be a picture of the unity that the son of David, the Messiah, brings to the church. And so he wants this unity. The unity displays the unity that the Son of God has with God the Father and God the Spirit. Unity comes from God. God is bringing salvation through the nation of Israel to all the world. And this is the beginning of this nation becoming very, very great, very wealthy, very politically powerful in the world. God is bringing that about. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. And God is using a wicked person to do it. So we need to understand God's sovereignty. That it doesn't matter who's in authority, God can work through their decisions, their personal desires, to accomplish His saving purposes. We need to get that belief into our heads as we take the second takeaway which is that Christians need to submit to secular authority. Christians must submit to secular authority. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now as you're turning there, because we're going to look at it for a second, as you're, we're turning there, let me tell you a quick story. I had only been in Mansfield for maybe a year or two, sometime around there, and one of the guys from the church uh, wanted to take the children's pastor, me, out for a ride in his new car. He had this sporty little car, rode really low, and he kind of wanted to show it off. So, Pastor Nate, why don't you come for a ride? Sure. So, I don't know this guy, you know, but he goes to our church, so it'll be fine. I get into his car, he slides in behind the wheel, vroom, 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 you know, starts to rumble and everything, and he pulls out, goes down Middle Del Belleville Roll Road, hits Hanley Road, gets onto Possum Run Road. He loves Possum Run Road because it's got all those turns, you know, and curves. And I think he got that thing up to 75. 
I mean, he's like, mm, mm, hugs the road, and you know, and all white knuckles. I like, I think the speed limit's 55. And this is what he says. That's a secular rule. Yeah, and it's going to save my life, buddy. <laughs> you know, his theology was, you don't have to obey secular authority because it's, you know, they're not believers. I don't know. But 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm very happy to say I'm still alive to read it to you today. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, be subject for the Lord's sake, okay, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, meaning by uh, being subject and honoring the authorities, by be doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor what we see here is that my attitude towards government will either open the door for evangelism or close it and so i have to figure out what's more important to me the door to the gospel being open or my political ideas. And it doesn't matter if it's Clinton or Bush. It doesn't matter if it's Obama or, or Hillary or Trump. I will honor and submit to every secular authority because I believe the Bible that says God will accomplish his purposes through any leader. All authority comes from God. And in my, in my arguing I, about political things, I am closing the door to the gospel. No one wants to hear about Jesus from a knucklehead who forces his political ideas on other people and calls them stupid if they don't agree. We have to be careful what we put online. We have to care, be careful about how we talk. Because it says, for the Lord's sake, as a person who is walking with Jesus, who has made Jesus the Lord of my life, I have to submit to every secular authority in my life. Because my good works will silence the ignorance of foolish people. When they see how I respond to authority, it will either open the door to evangelism or close it. Which one is it going to be for me? Which one is it going to be for me? See, I have to rest in the idea that God is working through every leader. Because if I can rest in that, if I can believe in that, then I'm not going to be flustered and bothered by whoever makes 
whoever gets elected. Whether it's federal, local, county, doesn't matter. I know God's at work. So I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be angry. I can just trust in the Lord. Look back in verse 12. We're still in 1 Peter 2. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That means the unchurched, the unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then, what I love is verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Your submission is about your walk with Christ, not about a statement of who you're submitting to. So I will submit to the school board. I'll submit to the county commissioners. I'll submit to the zoning board. I'll submit to the governor. I'll submit to the senators. They are in a place of authority over me. I will honor them and submit to them. Because for the Lord's sake, I want to keep the door open for evangelism. I want my attitude to be one that draws people to Jesus. Okay, those are our two takeaways about wicked politicians. We can learn something from them. But now we get a, a second politician in here, a righteous politician. Some people might think that that's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's two words that seem to be opposites, but you put them together, like going to a restaurant and ordering jumbo shrimp. Okay, that's an oxymoron. Righteous politician? There's no such thing, is there? But there is, and it's King David. A man after God's own heart. He's a righteous politician. Now, in the midst of him being righteous, let's watch. Yeah, we need to be praying for our people in authority. Especially our brothers and sisters who are in authority, secular authority over us. Because there's a line that they have to walk that's really hard to walk. What we're going to see here is that David is going to uh, work with unrighteous politicians. He has to, because everyone else is. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Okay, so this righteous politician has to work with unrighteous politicians. And that can be tricky, but he's going to do it. So here we are, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 3. A, uh, Abner... This unrighteous, wicked, self-centered political guy has offered a treaty to David. Is David going to take it? Is he going to combine and make a treaty with this wicked politician? Verse 20, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, Hebron was the town that David had kind of set up as his capital of Judah, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and I will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, talking about David, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. He made a treaty with an unrighteous politician, a manipulating, self-centered politician who was probably trying to get a position in the new united government you know if i can make this happen david will really appreciate it 
Maybe he'll even kick Joab out, and I'll be the, now the, the general of a unified army. This guy's just finagling around. And David, I don't think, is an idiot. I think he sees it. But he also sees God moving. And he believes this treaty is from the Lord. And so he works with unrighteous politicians. Not only does this righteous politician work with unrighteous ones, but he even has unrighteous men in his own cabinet. Okay? Joab, his, his general, is actually also his nephew. and He also is a very angry, unrighteous man. Now, we need to know back in chapter 2, we won't look at it, but back in chapter 2 there was a battle. The battle at Gibeon. And during the battle at Gibeon, Abner, the general from the north, killed Joab's brother. So Joab has a personal vendetta against Abner. He was out doing some raids for his king, David. He comes back. Joab comes back. And as he comes back, he realizes Abner, the one who killed his brother, had just made a deal with David and had just left the town. And he was ticked off. He couldn't believe that David had made a treaty with this guy. And so, here is this general. He's pretty much over the, the war department, right? He's in David's cabinet. He takes matters into his own hands. In verse, what are we, 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, Joab is his general, he sent messengers after Abner, that wicked politician, and they brought him back. But David did not know about it. That's important. David did not know about it. And when Abner, the general, returned to Hebron, Joab, David's guy, took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. I've got a word for you. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. He curses Joab's family. He is declaring his own innocence in this politically tense time this political assassination he needs to make sure that he is not accused because he didn't know anything about it the text is very clear that david was innocent even though he had this unrighteous man working with him verse 32 they buried abner at hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of abner and all the people wept and the king lamented for abner drop down now to Verse uh, 38, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Here's the point. All the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. David wants to wield his power carefully. In a monarchy, 
you have the ability to just cut off anybody's head you want. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to answer to anybody. There's not a separation of the branches of government. You are legislative. You are executive. You're judicial. You're everything as king. But he wants to wield that power carefully. And I'm not saying that he does it perfectly every time, but he wanted to do it carefully. Back down to verse 38. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. Though I had the power of personal vendetta, I didn't take it. But, he says, these men, the sons of Zeruai, that's Joab uh, and his brother, they are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness couple of things, last two takeaways that a Christian can learn from righteous politicians, from David the righteous politician. Okay, so we've got, so far we've had a belief. We've had a belief to take away, which is that God can use unrighteous people in places of authority. And then we had an attitude that we need to submit to those in authority, believing that God can use them. Okay, now we have a call to action as I see David, a righteous man, in the place of authority, I believe that, go back, oh, is that, yeah, that is the one we need, right? Yeah, go, no, there it is. No, go back one more. I know, see, they're both labeled three. This is the one I want us to look at. That's why you're confused, because I labeled them both three. The little A is invisible, and then there's a 3B that's invisible. So, so totally your fault, Jim. Okay, so here's takeaway, <laughs> takeaway number three. Takeaway number three. Christians can serve. We didn't even have that problem for service, so I don't know. Why. Okay, so Christians can serve in government. In fact, I think Christians should serve in government. In, in your bulletin, there's an insert. And we're very used to praying for our national leaders and praying for our state leaders. But how often do we pray for our city leaders, our mayor, and our city council? And so I've listed them there. Now, um, I've noticed that as I looked at them, that three of those city council members, city leaders, come to Berean. And uh, I'm really proud of them. I have not gotten permission to share with them or anything, so I'm just going to use their first names. But let me just thank Jason and Jim and Nathan and Bob, because you as born-again believers have taken on the mantle of responsibility at a greater level for our community, whether it's government or it's some other organization, a community organization. If God has given you the gift of leadership and administration, there may be other places to use it besides just the church. You can use it in the church, but you can use it in your community. And there may be people here who are thinking about that, serving in their city, serving maybe in the state, maybe even if the Lord wills it, you would be serving at the federal level, at the national level. I believe that as Christians, we can and maybe even should serve in government. And the second number three takeaway is that we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I, the, the 
similarity bef- between this, this passage in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2 is striking. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and uh, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Good government creates a quiet and orderly community which creates the flourishing of the gospel. That's what he says. Pray for kings and those in authority. I would suggest that we pray for wisdom to know what works for us as a community and then for courage to do what's right even when there's other voices trying to tell them to do something different. But it says that when our, our secular leadership makes good choices and rules well, then we live quiet and peaceful and godly lives and the Savior who wants to save all people is pleased with that. Something about an orderly society pleases God. He likes it when there's unity. He takes pleasure in order. He takes pleasure when those who are in a lower position submit to those who are in a higher position. He takes pleasure when those who are in a higher position serve those who are in a lower position with wisdom and courage. And so he says, because this is good, you pray for it. Pray for your leaders. I wonder what would happen. I wonder if anything would be different if literally hundreds of people from our church began to pray for the local leaders, the village councils, the city councils, the school boards, And we just prayed for them on a regular basis by name. These are normal Joes and Janes. They've got spouses. They've got kids. They have things that they worry about. They've got the weight of the leadership on them. And we need to pray for them. Ronald Reagan, when he was president, he left orders. In case of a national emergency, He says, I don't care, you just wake me up whenever. He says, I've left orders to be awakened at any time in case of a national emergency, even if I'm in a cabinet meeting. So even if I'm falling asleep at a cabinet meeting, wake me up for a national emergency. He was actually known for falling asleep in cabinet meetings. The weight that our leaders carry on our behalf, that deserves our prayers. They deserve to have strength for that job. And we can see God move in our community as we pray for these leaders. Uh, I would encourage you also to pray uh, for my trip. I leave this Saturday to go to the Dominican Republic. I'll be visiting the school where many of you sponsor children at Fountain of Life. I'll be um, 
chaplaining uh, the nurses that go down there, the male and female nurses that go down there. I'll probably be sharing uh, the gospel in many cases, maybe teaching English, maybe teaching at chapel, probably speaking at church, just a lot of things going on at the DR. Don't get jealous. I'm going to the DR this week. Uh, and then, this is what I would really appreciate prayer for, uh, March 10th, where the white guy crosses the border between Dominican and Haiti. Dominicans and Haitians don't like each other. And that's because Haitians like to cross the border illegally into the DR because it's better in the DR. And very few people like illegal immigrants. So there's a little bit of conflict there. So a white guy passing that border can get sticky. So I would appreciate your prayers on Saturday, March 10th, as I transfer over. Uh, and then I join our team that is doing some medical work and building a church there in Haiti. So I've never been to either place before. Uh, I made a decision when I became senior pastor that I want to visit all the mission fields that we support. And it's taken me a couple of years to do it. Um, but I'm excited about that trip. I'd appreciate your prayers for it. All right, let's rise for our uh, closing benediction this morning. And now may the king of all the earth bless you and keep you. And may your submission to him and your honoring of authority be known to all so that the gospel goes forth in power for God's glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here this morning.